Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode was recorded on Saturday, February 1st, 2020, starting just after 3 p.m. at 3.03 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 241st episode of the show. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologer Demetra George about the use of the asteroids in astrology. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. Uh, hey, Demetra, thanks for joining me for this episode. Yeah, it certainly is a pleasure, um, Chris, and this is the year I'm revisiting the asteroids, so it's very timely. Yeah, uh, this is very timely because you're doing a number of new talks and workshops on the asteroids this year, and this has been a major part of your life for several decades now, right? Certainly. Um, I would say the first 25 years of my astrological career was created by my exploration of the asteroids, and roughly from 1973 to the late 90s. And it was during that time that I wrote Asteroid Goddesses and began to teach the material all over the world. In the late 90s, I connected with the traditional Hellenistic astrology, and that's been a 20-year um, endeavor that now is like almost complete, and I wanted to reconnect with the asteroids one more time. Brilliant. All right. Um, so we talked about some of this, and we went over like your entire life story in a biographical episode in episode seventy-three of the Astrology Podcast. Um, and people can definitely go back and listen to some of that. But I still wanted to touch again on like how you got started with the asteroids and how that became a major part of your career because you had a unique story with them. Um, in terms of how you got into them just by chance at your first astrology conference, right? Correct. It was in April of 1973, and I was living in the mountains of rural Oregon, and there was an astrology conference in San Francisco um, at Lone Mountain State College put on by a, the New York um, uh, organization. And it was my very first conference, and I walked in as a um, very young woman, not knowing anyone. And standing off to the side of me was a very friendly-looking um, woman who I sort of sidled next to so it wouldn't appear as if I was totally isolated and alone. And she engaged me in conversation, and that turned out to be Eleanor Bach who had recently published the very first asteroid ephemeris several weeks before. She had copies literally uh, hot off the press in her satchel. And when she found out that my name was Demetra, that was the um, equivalent of the Roman goddess series, which was the asteroid that prompted so much of her own curiosity. Um, she and that I lived on a commune in Southern Oregon involved in organic um, gardening. She mm. was very curious to look up where Ceres was in my chart. And when she found it opposite my son, a wide smile came across her face and she reached into her bag and gave me a copy of her book. Um, and then I took that book back home um, and 
basically living off the grid and outside of the mainstream astrological community for at least the next three years, I began to place the asteroids into the charts I was doing. I'd been studying astrology not even two years at that point and beginning to tell the stories of the goddesses when I would see one prominent in someone's chart. And from there began to develop my understanding of their meanings. Okay. So in the significance of Eleanor Box publishing that ephemeris in 1973 titled The Asteroid Ephemeris is that this was like prior to the era of personal computers Correct. so that um, you couldn't just like go to astro.com and have the asteroids calculated on the fly in your chart. You actually, everybody was still calculating charts by hand. And even though some of these asteroids had been around since the early like 1800s, this was the first time that somebody actually published an ephemeris that would allow you to calculate where they were in birth charts. Exactly. And she, it took her quite a few years of begging and pleading and conjoling astronomers to go through the very tedious calculations in order to generate their orbits and their astrological positions because their orbits were highly eccentric. It was not such an easy task, but she persevered. And um, that was like very special within three weeks of its publication. I just stumbled into her at my first conference. So it right. was a kind of a moment of fate or destiny. Being named after the first asteroid that had been discovered, correct. And that right. was my. For many people, wonder about where that name came from. Mm. And uh, the story goes, it was my grandmother's name, and I had been named after my maternal grandmother Margarita when I was born. But when it came time for me to be baptized my godmother refused to name me with that name, and she insisted that I be named Demetra after my paternal grandmother. So they had mm. to change all the birth certificates and such. And then later on, when all of the other asteroids um, started to be discovered, I looked up the asteroid Demeter, that's the Greek equivalent, and my grandmothers were Greek, and that asteroid was um, conjunct my 12th house Saturn in my chart, which is the paternal um, significator. Wow. So there that was. Okay. Um, and so you then take this asteroid ephemeris home. You're still relatively early in your career, um, but then you started incorporating the asteroids into your work as what must have been one of the first astrologers then to really start working with them in some personal capacity. Um, as you were first starting to read charts and learn astrology? Right. As far as I know, I said I was totally unplugged from the mainstream community and living off the grid. And this was before the internet and computers. Um, I didn't really know what was going on very much in the larger community. And Eleanor in her book had given some tentative keywords that she thought might be associated. Mm. And very short um, entries on the mythology of the goddesses. And because, again, going back to my Greek grandmothers who told me the myths as my bedtime stories, I had some familiarity with 
the myths of the goddesses and gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon. So I would just start by telling the story of Ceres slash Demeter of being the goddess of agriculture and her daughter being abducted and her grief and sorrow and eventual reunion. And I began to see my friend's eyes light up and say, you've just told me the story of my life. Mm. And that led me to the whole, eventually, the archetypal Jungian theories around mythology as being sort of the archetypal stories of the collective unconscious and that people began to recognize what were seemingly unrelated incidents in their lives as falling into this mythic pattern and seeing their lives as a universal expression of one of the basic fundamental stories of um, our Western tradition. And that realization allowed for a huge self-understanding and acceptance and being able to place oneself in the larger scheme of themes and understand a sort of larger vision of what one's life was about. So it was very profound experiences that happened as people then started relating the the details of their own stories and how they correlated with the mythic drama. Okay. Uh, And you spent uh, 10 years then doing that research or over a decade doing that research before you eventually published your first book, which was your book, Asteroid Goddesses, on this topic in 1986, right? Right. So it happened that by the early 1980s, I had a whole body of information that I had accumulated. Mm. And at that point, I was giving little talks here and there. But I remember going to another conference in the Bay Area and asking someone who was involved in publishing what was the best way for me to disseminate the material. And they said, oh, well, you need to write a book because you can, if you give a talk, maybe eight people will hear it. But if you write a book, then you have a larger audience. Hmm. So then I went back circa 1980 with, oh, I have to like write a book. But my children were quite young at that time. And I'd been out of academia for at least a dozen years. Uh, And that's when Douglas Block came into the picture, who's the editor, co-author of Asteroid Goddesses. And when I met him, he was a local Eugene astrologer. I put the asteroids in his chart. They were very prominent and important. He encouraged me to write this down. I said, I'm not really a very good writer. He said, well, I am. Just like, sit down and write what you can and tell me the stories. And together, he did like a line-by-line, sentence-by-sentence editing of the work. And that resulted in the Asteroid Goddess book that was completed at the end of 1984 and then published one week before UAC in June of 1986. Okay. Uh, So this was when... and, and. This was your first book, and this helped to popularize um, the use of the asteroids, although it seems like it was part of a broader wave where by that time, a number of people were starting to get into it and starting to get excited about asteroids to some extent. To some extent, Zipporah Dobbins was doing a lot of very important work with the asteroids. But 
they were looked at at that point with some derision and humor by the larger astrological community who called them floating gravel and debris. And the, um, so I want to say the established astrologers were quite resistant to listening about them or incorporating them. Their um, attitude was, we're doing fine with the 10 planets that we already have. We don't need anything else cluttering up and confusing our charts. And besides, we've got our systems down and we really don't want to have to learn anything new. Okay. So, so there was like resistance um, to the idea of the asteroids at first. There was tremendous resistance to the idea. And I realized at that point that I would never break into the higher levels of the astrological community by trying to convince the people at the top. But what I had was a wide open audience for the grassroots clients. And the 70s and 80s was the height of the women's spirituality movement. And I connected with that and had huge audiences of women who were desperate to know where the goddesses were in their charts and how that shaped and influenced their lives. So um, especially with Vicki Noble, who had a mother peace school, we did a lot of teachings in Europe and in the United States. And through the trickle up effect, these were people who also went to astrologers for reading. So as they went to um, their astrologer and said, well, what about the asteroids in my chart? That's what I want to know about. Hmm. That was really what motivated established professionals to um, begin considering and incorporating them. Okay. And so here's the cover. I was looking for a cover. I can't find like the first edition. I think this is the cover of the second edition, right? Right. The first edition is like uh, Wonder Woman characters. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've got to find that. Well, so, and also the title in the second edition was changed. So it's Astro Goddesses, the Mythology, Psychology, and Astrology of the Reemerging Feminine. Right. That was the title in the first edition as well. Okay. So right there then in the title, like part of the premise is framing the asteroids as part of the the reemergence of the feminine as like a major sort of conceptual access point and sort of motivation for why the asteroids are important or why you were trying to integrate them and thought they were important to integrate into your astrology, right? Yes. And this is the um, basis of the new work that I'm creating this year for the asteroids, is I'm actually tracing the uh, woman's movement from around the time of the discovery of the asteroids right up to the present era of Me Too, and then looking at the charts of the current political candidates to see who's are speaking the concerns of the feminine. So we've, many of us have learned in our studies of um, basic astrology that the discovery of the planets Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto seem to correspond with collective events in the world that corresponded to their significations. So when Uranus was discovered, a planet we associate with freedom and rebellion and revolution, 
its discovery in 1981 was coincident with the American and French revolutions. And in, in likewise, seven, 1781. The, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and likewise for Neptune and Pluto. So the asteroids that were discovered right at the beginning of the 1800s, um, my thesis is corresponded to an awakening or reawakening of the feminine principle in psyche and society. And I have a lot of examples of um, the foreshadowing of that in the 10 years or so before. And then women who were born around the time of the asteroid discovery were involved in the organization of the Seneca Falls Convention, which was the first national organization to come together for um, women's rights. And because this year, 2020, is the 100th centennial of women having the vote, it seemed an especially appropriate time to develop this new work. And I'm giving this talk a number of times this year as a commemoration of that event. But yes, okay. definitely, the awakening of the feminine, seeking equality um, on all levels, I feel is definitely part of the discovery of the asteroids, that there's a operative theory as above, so below, that when a celestial body is discovered external to us, it corresponds to an awakening of that center of consciousness within the psyche. And so for new celestial bodies named after the goddesses of the highest rank in Greek mythology, definitely connected with that awakening. Okay. So the first four asteroids that were discovered between 1800 and 1807 were Ceres, Pallas Athena, Vesta, and Juno. And the astronomers who discovered them named them all after uh, Greek or Roman goddesses, whereas up to that point, there were only two celestial bodies that were named after female goddesses, which were the moon and Venus, and the rest Correct. of the celestial bodies were named after male gods, basically, right? Correct. And there's a perspective that while throughout most of astrology's history, as far as we know, the major practitioners and clients were men. But in the last um, century and a half, most of the clients certainly and a majority of um, practitioners are women. And until the inclusion of the asteroids, we have been working with a pantheon of two feminine archetypes, the moon and Venus, and then eight masculine archetypes. And by and large, the two roles that women have had available for their self-expression have been as wives, Venus, and as mothers, moon. And with the discovery of the asteroids, and then certainly with the publication of the ephemeris in the 70s, coincident with the second wave of feminism, many more roles became available for the expression of feminine energies, not only in women, but in men as well, for everyone in general. And so the asteroids, from that perspective, and at least the first four, are more than just extra points to put in the chart, but they bring that 
gender balance into the scope of human expression. Okay. And that, so it's- yeah, when you talk, when we speak about the great Olympian gods, uh, whom Jupiter, Neptune, and Pluto were brothers, Ceres and Juno and Vesta were their three sisters. And actually, they were all born first before the boys were. So in terms of ranking in the pantheon of uh, royalty and hierarchy, they have equal rank with Jupiter, Neptune, and Pluto. And Pallas was the daughter of Jupiter, who was self-born out of his own head. So one of the arguments you'd make, because I did open it up on uh, Twitter, and I asked for some questions for this interview today, and there was a lot of good ones that came through. Uh, one of them was from Alice Bolin on Twitter, who said, "What do you say to people who say that the asteroids are less serious or valid form of astrology?" And this is sort of connected with this because part of your answer is that these are not just additional variables that you're throwing in a chart, but it's also balancing out. Maybe the argument you would make is it's balancing out an inherent imbalance in the system as it's been constructed to some extent up to this point. Right. Absolutely. And. The counter argument had been, well, asteroids in astronomy have a lower rank than the planets do. Mm -hmm. And that's why the um, controversy some years ago over whether Pluto was a planet or not was so interesting, um, where Pluto got demoted to a minor planet and Ceres got promoted from an asteroid to a minor planet so that they were of equal rank. Mm -hmm. And in mythology, series like most important stories with Pluto's abduction of her daughter. And a feminist perspective of that story goes that Ceres and her daughter Persephone were the rulers of both the earth and the underworld. And when Jupiter defeated his father and took over as king, he gave the underworld to his brother Pluto for his domain. But the only way that Pluto could claim his kingdom was through the abduction and rape of the daughter of the goddess who owned it in the first place, <clears throat> which it was often a way that challengers to feudal lords established their hold was by having relations with the woman who had been the wife of the slain lord of the castle and affirming their rulership. So that there was a certain injustice that had occurred and the um, demoting of Pluto and the raising of Ceres sort of righted an old wrong. So that was a story that um, we passed around in the circles of people who had been very connected with myth and asteroids while that was happening. Okay. Um, one of the points I want to clarify at this point is that part of the theoretical premise and the operational premise for your work on the asteroids all along is that the meaning of the asteroid's name or the name assigned to an asteroid, why somebody might say that that was just given randomly like by some astronomer and it doesn't have any inherent meaning, part of the premise is that the name given to these celestial bodies that are newly discovered does have some sort of symbolic meaning or synchronistic connection with its actual meaning in astrology, right? Yes, and that's one of the places where astrology becomes like so weird. And 
in my 40, almost 50 years of doing astrology, my trajectory has been more toward a certain fate rather than free will. But it's not been the traditional Hellenistic astrology that's brought me there, but it's been the asteroids. Mm. And one of the story, and it's true that the astronomer who discovers an asteroid has a privilege of giving it its name. And then people okay. say, some astronomer who doesn't know anything about, you know, Jung or the collective psyche or symbolism or astrology arbitrarily gives some random body this name and you're saying that it then means that. And I have to say, yes, and I don't know why that works, but I've seen dozens and dozens of examples that it does. You know, one of my stock stories is the chart of Prince Charles, who has the planet Venus in Libra, and within 15 minutes of arc of the asteroids Camilla and Parks. Mm -hmm. And he has had, from his early youth, a lifelong love for someone who carried the name of Camilla Parker Bowles. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that, like, you know, whatever angst I had about Diana, like immediately dissolved because it was somehow woven into his destiny at his birth moment, that his Venusian affections would be tied to that vibratory energy. And I can like fill up, you know, the next seven hours with stories of how the minor asteroids work like that in people's charts. So that's one of the mysteries of astrology. And as I said, is like weirder than even most of the time Lord methods that we do um, when we try to think about why should um, that work in that particular way. Right. So, so initially the astronomers, when they were discovering this first like hundred or so asteroids, they were trying to give them additional Greek and Roman names from mythology in order to to follow the prior naming convention of the planets, but then eventually they started naming, giving them like ordinary names of people or celebrities, and then eventually names of places and trees and flowers and even concepts because there's countries, cities. Um, So there's a whole host of um, names, and um, one story I remember quite early on in my work uh, was uh, a man had the asteroid Juno, the goddess of marriage, conjunct the asteroid Kiev and the asteroid Russia. And it was having some sort of Uranus transit at the time. And I said, oh, the goddess of marriage is being activated and unusual and unexpected ways. Like, you know, do you have any connection with anyone from like Russia or Kiev in particular? And he was shot because he was involved in exchanging letters looking for a mail order bride with a woman from Kiev. And the reason he called was to find out if I advised him traveling to Russia to meet her. Wow. Okay. Okay. So that's the species how specific that they can be um, in their indications. Sure. So, but the 
original starting point then instead of it being like approaching the body empirically by just like throwing it in charts and starting to see what pops up and somehow narrow it down from there the starting point or the initial starting point is the name or the mythology associated with the body and then placing it in charts in order to see the ways in which that name or that mythology manifests in the lives of individuals that's that's correct and Certainly people who are involved in a more scientific kind of astrology or research astrology often object to that approach. But I argue that the very beginnings of astrology were mythologically oriented in ancient Babylonia, where the planets were considered to be one of the manifestations of their gods. And that the attributes that were given to the planets were in accordance with the characteristics of the deities that they were associated with. And that even came forward into when the Greeks received astrology, that the earliest astronomers receiving the astronomy of the Babylonians in naming the planets look for their own deity that had the closest association with the deity of the Babylonians. So when the planet that we know as Venus was presented to them as Inanna or Ishtar, the Mesopotamian goddess of love, they said, oh yeah, we have a goddess of love, that's Aphrodite. And so all of these significations of that planet were put under the auspices of Aphrodite and then Venus by the Romans. So that there is a mythological basis for the meanings of celestial bodies that goes back to the very beginnings of our tradition. Right, right. So you'd argue that the basis of traditional astrology is not entirely just abstract um, conceptual notions about different planets based on their astronomical movements or things like that, but the use of mythology has been an inherent interpretive tool going back uh, in the astrological tradition thousands of years. Exactly. And we certainly would like to think that astrologers had thousands of years of empirical data in working out the significations of the planets, but we certainly don't see that in actuality, that that kind of record-keeping existed in that particular way. Sure, like sometimes there, there's charts or, or whatever they're working with clients, but in terms of what the origins of some of the techniques are, right. it's kind of mixed. And sometimes yeah. you have different things coming from different sources, clearly. And one of the major ones is mythology. Exactly. So right. Mars has to do with violence and bloodshed and battle, mm-hmm. is totally in alignment with Ares Mars being the god of war. Right, and that was always a question of sometimes that that gets the question that comes up is which one came first, like the astrological meaning or the the mythology mythological meaning. Right, but if we believe in a sort of, and here we go into the universe is alive and ensouled with meaning, mm-hmm. that the relationship between the planets and the myths and the human psyche are not all separate and discrete entities but a part of a larger holistic web of unified meaning. 
Okay. Um, so all that being said, though, in terms of the use of mythology and the connection with the gods in the Mesopotamian tradition and also in the Greek tradition, in some of the later traditions, at least in terms of interpretations of natal charts or horary charts, mythology, I don't want to say completely dropped out, but maybe was not as prominent as like a technique for consultations, but then it became a super prominent technique. It seems like in late 20th century astrology, especially following some of the work that Carl Jung was doing. Um, so I was wondering, I mean, we've already touched on this a little yeah. bit, but it seems like the the use of mythology as a delineation tool in astrology is like another major component that really came into play here in a major way. Right, certainly. Um, Liz Green was one of the first people to start writing in that way mm -hmm. and who sparked the sort of mythic connection with um, with astrology in our recent history. But if we go back to why I think mythology dropped out of the tradition, had to do, first of all, with Ptolemy trying to bring astrology into a more um, scientific direction. Mm -hmm. And right at that time period, you have the shift in religion between the many pagan gods and of the previous religion and the monotheistic gods of Christianity. Hmm. And that astrology trying to become more uh, scientific also wanted to um, disconnect itself from any kind of religious controversy. So it was reframed as the qualities of hot, wet, cold, and dry, and physical causation, and so on, so that the many pagan gods wouldn't compete with the one and only one god. However, the mythological perspective of astrology went underground into astrological magic, where the gods continued to be invoked with all of their attributes in the performing and timing of magical rituals. Right, that makes total sense. So the shift from like polytheism in the West to monotheism, and then also the shift towards conceptualizing astrology as a causal influences of the planets, which was one of the things that allowed it to survive through the Middle Ages and yeah. not be stamped out completely, exactly. would have had the side effect of removing mythology to some extent as one of the interpretive principles. Right. But then that sort of came back in a big way in 20th century astrology. Okay, um, that makes a lot of sense. So then your book comes out in 86. That really does help to popularize the asteroids again, especially amongst um, the younger generations of astrologers. And then there was other major um, practitioners who contributed to the popularization of the asteroids around this time period in the 1980s and 90s as well, right? That's right. And um, Eleanor Bach was the first person who gave us the ephemerides. There were several astrologers, such as Nona Gwynn Press, who are part of the New York NCGR community where um, Eleanor was that began working with them. Uh, Bill Meridian actually was another person who started working with the asteroids then and continues to do that now. Um, and he has some very fascinating material on how he uses them with his financial astrology. 
Then on the West Coast, Zipporah Dobbins was fascinated by the asteroids, and her son, Mark Pottinger, created a software program so she could easily generate lists of asteroids. And Zip was one of my teachers in the early years where I got more closely connected with the astrologers while I was writing my book. And then because Zipporah Dobbins was and her daughter Maritha were part of Neil Nicholson's ACS, Astrocomputing Services, um, that was the company who was open to publishing my book because they had a personal history of working with this material. So okay. there's a huge debt that goes to Maritha Pottinger and Neil Nicholson for believing in the project. And then when it was published um, in 1986, Neil was one of the organizers of UAC, and it had come out like a week before. And I said to him, is there you know, any chance of a cancellation at UAC so I could give a talk? And they came back and they said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, there is like, we can't pay you or give you a room or anything, but we'll give you a room and an open spot. Wow. And so um, we went to that conference and Douglas and I got a table on the trade show where we were offering to look up asteroids for free in people's charts and write them in. And then at the bookstore, we um, sold um, a book to 10% of the people who attended UAC and that was like a great launch for getting it out into the community right away. Wow. Okay. So you made it a huge splash at the yeah. first United Astrology yeah. Conference in 1986 with the book, with the Asteroids book. Yeah. Um, and then, so besides that, there's also in like the 1980s, okay. Lee Lehman so published Lee Lehman the book. Did it, okay. Al Morrison and Lee Lehman did, um, were the first people to put out the ephemerides of a number of minor asteroids. Okay. And and, th this and that was, was the in, ultimate asteroid book? Well, the ultimate asteroid book came later. Okay. Some years later, but it was in late 1977. So I was working with the asteroids at that point, but I hadn't written my book. And I went to the post office one day. I was living in Walport, Oregon, and there was this brown envelope filled with all of these ephemerides of 10 or 12 minor asteroids. And I mm. said, thought to myself, how did they know to send them to me? Right. But I, I just like, once again, took them and started adding those into my chart. And it was Lee and Al who were responsible for publishing them. And Wait, do you still not know? Like, them. how did you end up with that? Right. Why they I sent still it to don't you? really quite know what mailing list my name had gotten on that I was okay. sent that. Another wow. one of like those mysteries of how right. You're just like <laughs> falling into right, the, falling yeah. into it, and <laughs> right. Being a little hippie girl on the Oregon coast and <laughs> just going along with the flow, so to speak. Okay. So there was Lee, and then Lee wrote a book called the um, Ultimate Asteroid Book, which she had jokingly said was her ultimate word on the asteroids. And then she was on to her horror astrology after that was published. Right. So she and, went, went traditional not long yes, after that. Yes, exactly. Okay. And then Zane Stein was one of the first forerunners of getting the works on Chiron out, both the ephemeris and the initial research and publicity. And Melanie Reinhardt picked and um, 
was one of the people who picked up on Chiron and the uh, centaur asteroids associated with Chiron mythologically. Okay. So yeah, and her book, I'm trying to remember the title of Melanie Reinhardt's book, but that's one of the books that helped to popularize the use of Chiron and establish some of the basic interpretive principles for it after its discovery in 1977? Yes. Okay. And then who else? Barbara Henclough? Henclough. She wrote another book on Chiron, and that was very popular for Mm. a period of time. And when we were um, discussing this, you were wondering about why Chiron seemed to have caught on and the asteroids didn't necessarily. Yeah, that was one of the questions that came in from one of the Twitter users who let me find their name really quickly so I don't accidentally forget somebody because that was a really good question, but they just asked. um, Yeah, uh, it's from Twitter user at Sky Insights 101 who asks, why does Chiron get so much attention? I definitely think its significations are valid, but is there a reason why the other asteroids are usually neglected in favor of that one? Which is really an interesting question because I noticed in your book in Asteroid Goddesses, it's really about the four original original asteroids, goddess asteroids, Ceres, Pallas, Juno, and Vesta, and Chiron has a relatively short short treatment in there. Right. Well, so there are many answers to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, Chiron is not technically an asteroid, first of all. Its orbit is out between Saturn and Uranus, and the asteroids are primarily in the belt between Mars and Jupiter. Okay, so you so make a it's distinction. It's a different category of solar system objects. At the time I was writing the book, I already knew of a lot of the work that was coming out on Chiron, so I didn't want to reduplicate it mm-hmm. and instead focus on the asteroids. So that those were some of my choices mm-hmm. um, for the book. But I can't help thinking that because Chiron was a male figure and the first four asteroids were all female figures, that the misogyny that has existed quite uniformly in our culture toward women was reflected to a certain extent in the astrological community by not being open to um, feminine principles, celestial bodies, while they were quick to embrace um, a masculine one. Mm, Okay. Yeah. And then I think even for younger generations of astrologers, for whatever reason, when I came into the community in 1999 or 2000, Astro.com had Chiron as a default planet that's just in all charts by default, whereas the other asteroids aren't. There's something where you have to deliberately add them in. Right. And then on a simple level, Chiron is just one thing that you have to deal with and manage and learn about. The asteroids, it's almost like never ending. Okay, you start with the first four, but then now there are 20,000 others. And Mm. where exactly do you draw the line? And seeing that may have been just too overwhelming or intimidating for many astrologers to be able to grasp and grapple with. Yeah, I was looking up some stats on Wikipedia, and it said that a hundred. So the first four were discovered between 1801 and 1807, but then by 1868, over a hundred asteroids had been discovered. By 1921, it was over a thousand, and by 2015, it was over 
700,000 asteroids have been discovered, although not all of them have been named quite yet? Right. There's about a little bit over 20,000 now that have been named and numbered that astrologers can obtain positions for for their charts. Okay. And Mark Pottinger's software program that I have used from the beginning and continue to use, there's continual updates. So it comes with a library of all of those asteroids. I believe that uh, David Cochran's Kepler Sirius program has an asteroid add-on that also accesses the larger list, and Solar Fire has one as well. But I don't know. Is it, I don't think they have all the asteroids on theirs. And then on astro.com, you can go and get a list of all of the named asteroids and select which ones you're interested in and get a specific uh, position for that asteroid. Okay. Um, do you, who came up with the glyphs for the asteroids? Do you know? Oh, well, that was like initially for Ceres, Pallas, Juno, and Vesta, they were presented in Eleanor Bach's book. Okay. And they came from the um, attributes that the goddesses carried that identified them in Greek art and sculpture. So the glyph of Ceres is the sickle by which she harvests the wheat as goddess of agriculture. The glyph for Pallas Athena is the spear that she carries into battle along with her shield. The glyph for Juno is the scepter of royalty. And the glyph for Vesta is the hearth fire. And she was the goddess of the sacred flame. And here, do you have like today's chart up on the board? Is that what you're looking presenting? Yes, I'm going to share for the video. Yeah. People watching the video version, um, a chart for just for right now that just shows the four asteroids and then Chiron's still there as well. Just right. To show so why the don't symbols. you go through and name them starting with a Vesta and Taurus? Sure. So Vesta's in the top left and that's a that's the, the, the glyph, fire. glyph is supposed to show the hearth and then the fire. Yeah. Because okay. And that's at 15 Taurus in the top left in this chart. In the bottom, very bottom in Libra at the bottom of the chart. Is Juno. Okay. And she was the queen of heavens, the later the, the sister and then the wife of Jupiter. So that's the scepter of royalty, which she holds. So it looks kind of almost like a almost like a sextile glyph at the yeah. top or like a star and then a cross below it. Mm-hmm. And then over on the far right at five degrees of Capricorn right now, that is Pallas. That's Pallas Athena, and that's the spear. And she was a goddess of wisdom and of war. And so that is one of her um, military or battle tools is the spear. Okay. And then just above that at zero degrees of Aquarius right now is the glyph for Ceres? Correct. And she was the goddess of agriculture, um, among other things. And that's the sickle by which she harvests the wheat. So... Those glyphs were initially proposed, and because they were representations of the symbols that were used in ancient Greek art, there wasn't there wasn't any controversy about them. They they were quite accepted. But mm. then, as all the other asteroids came out, 
various artists started coming up with their own representations. And then there started to be these flames and wars in the asteroid community about why are you using so-and-so's glyphs when I think you should be using my glyphs. Okay. Right. <laughs> that point I said, oh, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to use any glyphs <laughs> aside from the first four. And I'm just going to write their names out in my chart and bypass this um, difficulty altogether. Sure. And then we've seen a little bit of that continue recently with some of the new planets being discovered like Eris. And I've seen different astrologers coming up with certain glyphs and like passing around petitions to sort of get people to adopt their uh, glyph yeah. is like the official one and stuff. And it's interesting seeing some of that stuff happening in, yeah, in our time. Of course. Yeah. Um, all right. One of the things I wanted to touch on. So either one I wanted to touch on at some point, and maybe we could do this later, your later connection or conceptualization of the asteroids with the ancient Greek concept of the daimon. But maybe before we get there, because we're already focused so much on the big four, maybe we could talk a little bit more about their their meanings. Yes. I was hoping that you'd, you'd get there. Okay. Um, so let's see if I can um, do this about three to four minutes on each one. Sure. Okay. And I'll start with um, Ceres, which is the first asteroid discovered, the largest of the asteroids. And if the asteroids had originally been one planet that exploded or had broken apart, Ceres would have been the core of that planet. Right, because it's like by far the largest. It's not just like the largest, but it's actually really, really big, right? Right. Okay. It's like 600 meters. I'm not positive of that number. So just, sure, but relatively, yeah. like some of the other ones are, are very are small, small. But yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. And Ceres was known as the goddess of agriculture, who is responsible for feeding the people of the earth. And she was also the goddess of the death-rebirth mysteries, the Ellicinian mysteries. And her famous story is the abduction of her young daughter, Persephone, by Pluto, the god of the underworld. And her frantic search, and then when she found out that it was her own brother who had abducted and violated her child, her rage, and then as goddess of and her grief and depression and her powerlessness, and then finally, um, causing a famine on the earth as a bargaining ship to get back her daughter, which was partially successful. And so people who have a prominent series in their chart often have a strong desire to be a parent or a nurturer, to be a founding mother or a founding father of a organization, um, to nurture and sustain growth but they often experience some kind of loss or separation from their child or parent or loved one that is a major um, theme that shapes the rest of their lives. And because Siri is so connected with food, the child's first awareness of being loved is through being held and fed by the mother. And a clear stream of that gives a strong sense of self-worth and self-esteem. If that flow is interrupted, there can be um, 
poor self-esteem and never being able to develop. So on an inner level, series has a lot to do with our relationship with food, with our mother, and the value in which we hold ourselves. Because when Ceres and Persephone were separated, they both were unable to eat. The goddesses of agriculture couldn't eat because they were terrified. All of many women, especially their eating disorders, can be symbolized, can be seen in the chart also with a strong series. And when one starts poking into the causes of eating disorders, there is a whole body of research that shows that they are often the body's response to early sexual violation by a family member. And when women feel that their world is no longer safe and they're terrified, one of the symptoms is the inability to partake of nourishment. So those are some of the themes that come up in sort of a depth psychology view of series that um, are often profound um, healing places when looking at um, the charts of clients to be able to surface those issues and to have a symbol which can address them. And one of the most important pieces is that of feeling safe is key to a kind of healing and um, self-integration. Okay. So um, that's series. And, and one of the things that's interesting is that obviously there's a large part of that that's informed by the mythology, but now there's a large part that of the things that you're talking about that are informed by seeing thousands of clients and like seeing these themes come up yeah. over and over again in their lives when series is like prominent in their chart in different right. ways. Correct. And so that's where it gives credence to the mythic approach can be, um, what's the word, verified through actual experience. Sure. And we have the asteroids Persephone and Proserpina, which is the Latin um, word for Persephone. So those are even more specific in, the, um, in this theme. Okay. Okay. Right, because sometimes there's families of asteroids that you'll look for to cluster together certain themes or certain yeah. groups of concepts. Exactly. So if I see a strong series, then I'll also look for Persephone, Proserpina, the asteroid Demeter, and Pluto, and look for the um, correlations between those. And not to make this part go on longer, but I think that the, this example like pull some of that together. Um, a person I know who had Ceres conjunct the ascendant lost her three-year-old child in an unexpected fire. Her new husband was unable to conceive so that there was a double loss of not being able to replace the child. They um, ended up adopting a child and Ceres in her sojourn becomes the nursemaid to some other child, so that there is that theme. Then this woman had a green thumb, and she was an organic gardener, and she had a business running a bakery, so that there is the whole cultivation and preparation of food. 
as she got into her food, she became a nutritional counselor. Again, we're in the food thing. And that led her to many of her clients coming with stories of sexual abuse to become a therapist. And her latest emanation is working with the sexually abused children themselves. So in one lifetime, many of the different manifestations of series all come together like in one lifetime. And in the course of our lives, like we don't do all of our chart all at once or all of the manifestations of any single planet all at once. But over the course of a long life, many aspects of it will come to the fore at different times. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. All right. Um, so that is Sirius. Sirius. And then the next asteroid discoverer was Pallas? was Pallas Athena. Um, she was the daughter of Jupiter, born so-called parthenogenically out of the top of his head as the goddess of wisdom and war. And she took her place right at um, his side along with Apollo as um, Zeus's favorite children and highest ranking. And she became the patron deity of Athens. And while she was the only one of the old goddesses that was elevated in terms of being an image of the feminine that was strong, capable, um, wise, strategic in battle. She was always beating Mars in the Iliad and totally humiliating him whenever they got into it with one another. Um, she was also the patron of the artisans and craftspeople, the goddess of weaving, and had um, a huge range of significations. But they made her to be, um, the price that she had to pay for this elevation was being a virgin goddess and not having any lovers or consorts. And so for many women who carry the Pallas Athena archetype, they often find their life is a struggle between being the best they can be in whatever is their chosen field of expression, whether it's athletes or politics or education or whatever, at the cost of um, being too strong of a woman for uh, to be considered in relationship. So the girl who's applauded for winning the debate team victory in high school, no one really wants to ask to the prom because she's too threatening on an intellectual level. So that there is um, a huge piece of work of the um, integrating of that and realizing that the roots of the feminine are based in wisdom and creativity and that one doesn't have to disown one's femininity to be able to express that in those qualities in a healthy way. So sometimes, and also because she was her father's favorite daughter, we have the um, sort of uh, father-daughter complex that arises with Athena of um, women who seek their father's approval and to seek masculine approval and sort of negate their mothers and their sisters and other women as being too passive or silly or ineffectual so that there's, again, coming to terms with one's femininity. And because Pallas was born from an androgynous condition of Zeus, Pallas 
I've also seen her be prominent in the um, movement toward androgyny and the integration of male and female polarities within oneself. And I think can be a valuable research tool in all of the gender fluidity that is coming to the fore at this time. Okay. And like the, and non-binaries? Non-binaries, correct. Okay. And um, finally, um, Eleanor Bach, an insight that she had, because um, her spear and shield and secret emblem, the Palladium, a wooden statue of her, um, gave invincibility to whatever side was carrying it in battle. She has to do with the a whole um, autoimmune system and the mm. ability to resist attack and disease. So those are just a few high points with Athena that, again, become very valuable in addressing the concerns of contemporary um, clients. Yeah, I'm getting a much better sense as you talk through some of these things, how it's um, bringing in additional components and perspectives on um, feminine archetypes that maybe either aren't present or at least not talked about as much as core principles when you're talking about the only two otherwise like feminine archetypes in classical astrology of like the moon and Venus. Right. Although I guess it's like sometimes those show up, but they get compacted down into just like two significators. Of morning rising Venus yeah. or evening rising Venus and things like that. Yeah. In the Asteroid Goddesses book, there's a mandala of the Asteroid Goddesses that shows that the moon is the base or foundation of all of the feminine. Venus in the center is the core emanation coming into manifested form, where mm. the moon is the potentiality. And then the four asteroids sit at the four cardinal points which are the differentiation of the feminine into four primary modes. Okay. So that's all in one of those early chapters. Right. Okay. Brilliant. Um, all right. So that's Ceres and Pallas Athena. And then um, Juno is best known as the goddess of marriage. Um, but in actuality, she was a queen in her own right in um, archaic Greece before the Dorian tribes that carried Zeus as their god came and invaded that land. And Zeus is interchangeable with uh, Jupiter. And while he had many affairs when he got to the land of Argos, where Juno was, she was too powerful. She was the oldest, the ancient um, goddess associated with um, economic prosperity um, and with all of vegetative life. So he had to marry her. Um, in order to amalgamate the two cultures. And then Greek myth portrays her as the angry, jealous, shrewish wife. Um, but the alternate perspective is that there is a part of her who willingly gave over some of her power to Jupiter in order to forge an equal, deep, intimate, profound union with the other but her pathos lies in that she didn't get what she was hoping for. Um, and she sacrificed a whole queendom and then got set up as a figurehead and denied her ability to exercise her wisdom and rule her people. But she didn't accept it meekly and she totally acted out. And as a noted uh, mythologist called her the image of the 
captive nation princess who is coerced, but never really subdued by an alien conqueror. So Juno is a more specific differentiation of Venus in um, the urge toward committed relationship that is equal and fair with justice. And then it spreads out to not only equality in marriage for women, but equality, equal opportunity in all areas of life for all kinds of oppressed people. And I first got a clue to that years ago, looking at the chart of uh, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, who was running on the presidential platform on the Rainbow Coalition, where he had a son conjunct Juno. But in my recent work with the women's movement, many of the charts in the first wave of feminism, Juno is the asteroid that seemed to be most prominent. And so it has to do with women's equality across the board mm. in relationship, not only to a specific partner, but universally. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. And um, then the final asteroid is Vesta. Okay. And Vesta um, is uh, Hestia in Greek, the goddess of the hearth fire, the fire that is in the center of each house. It forms the cohesion of the household and the fire on the public hearth that is the ritual fire for the religious um, uh, practices of the city. And then in Rome, Vesta was transformed into the deity of the Vestal Virgins who were oath-bound to celibacy on the punishment of death being like buried alive. Uh, and they were responsible for tending the sacred fire that ensured the safety of the Roman Empire. So the initial um, speculations on Vesta, and then the arc, well, the Vestal virgins morphed into the nuns of the Middle Ages, and the old maids or spinsters by Victorian times. And initial speculations was that Vesta had to do with um, sublimation of one's sexual energy into either following a devotional or religious path like yoga, certain traditions in yoga that call for celibacy, or becoming a workaholic where one is totally focused on one's work to the exclusion of relationship, or of having that um, value of um, celibacy or being one's own person, being self-defined, not being defined via one's relationship to a child, a parent, a partner, a boss, anyone else. Then initially, when I put Vesta in charts and started talking about this, some people could relate, but some said, oh, that doesn't really describe me at all. Like I've had like lots of sexual encounters, um, whether I've been with someone or even when I've been with someone outside of that relationship. But many of them were fleeting and temporary that seem like so right at the moment, but like so terribly like crude and gross and shameful afterwards. And this was sort of my first poking into um, pre-Hellenic, pre-patriarchal myths and discovering that in ancient Mesopotamia, there were lineage of 
vestal priestesses who tended the sacred flame that were unmarried, but among their most important functions were the sacred sexual rites, whereby they would have ritual intercourse within the temple complex in order to bring healing or fertility to the members of the community. There is a class of um, Ishtar's priestesses that would have ritual intercourse with uh, soldiers returning from battle to cleanse them of the horror of their blood crimes before they re-entered society. And so I began to see, and I'm leaving out a lot of material here, that Vesta can represent a woman's autonomy over her body sexually and as well as for men. And for those who encounter the fleeting sexual encounter that seems like a communion at the moment and really weird afterwards, it is evoking some ancient archetypal memory of this being one of the highest functions one could have. And the other side of Vesta of being the fear of sexuality, the fear of pregnancy, which would cause one to be killed and being totally repressed in one's sexuality. But when you understand the ancient connection, you can see them as the two extremes of the similar continuum. And so in my recent work now with Asteroid Goddesses 2020, Vesta was very quiet during the 1800s and into the nineteen hundreds with the exception of um, Margaret Sanger opening the first um, birth control clinic and there was Vesta in a prominent position. And now with Me Too movement, Vesta is everywhere as a voice where um, there are allegations of sexual harassment that come forth. So again, that has been fascinating with the ancient myth and the speculation and now seeing like so many charts where she's the asteroid that seems to be most prominent in the Me Too movement. Right. So in that, you said Asteroids 2020, that's the talk and the workshop that you're going to be giving at a few conferences and other places yeah. this year. Yeah. That, you know, that talk is like so huge right now that um, I'm thinking of perhaps I'm giving it four or five times this year of dividing it up into um, foreshadowing first wave, second wave, third and fourth wave, and like what's happening in our election. So I'll see how I rearrange all the pieces of it as this year unfolds. But I'll be giving it next week at um, Fort Lauderdale at the uh, South Florida Astrological Association. Um, I'll be giving some variant of it at NORWAC. Um, I'll be doing a webinar on it through Astrology University on summer solstice. I'll be giving a variant on the British women and feminism at the Faculty of Astrological Studies in Oxford in August. And then I'll be bringing it totally up to date at ESAR in September. Brilliant. So, right. So this is a major piece of my work in 2020. Awesome. Okay. Um, that's that's exciting. And so that gives us some core meanings. And you go into all of those in much more depth, of course, in Asteroid Goddesses yes, and in it's other. Yes, totally work. devoted, right, to the mythology, the psychology. And then it has a cookbook section of the asteroids and various signs and houses and aspects. And Douglas and I, 
expanded the interpretations in the book to a report program called Asteroid Goddesses that um, you could order through my website. It's only $25 and it's about a 30 to 40 or 50 page report that gets printed out of the full meanings of the asteroids in your individual chart. Okay. And what was your website again? It's like DemetraGeorge.com? Yeah, DemetraGeorge.com. Okay. And you can go into the store and it'll pop it'll pop up at some place. Okay. Um, I know we're running out of time because you've got to go later. So I want to quickly try and get through a few other okay. major questions to round this out. Um, one of them or two that are connected is one, um, in the mid to late 90s, you got really into traditional astrology and studying Hellenistic astrology especially, and that's what your most recent as well as your forthcoming book is about, as we discussed in an episode I think a year ago. Yeah. But one of the questions is, how do you incorporate the asteroids into a more traditional framework? And two, there's so many asteroids now, how do you sort and priorita okay. prioritize which ones are more or less important to a person? Okay, that's great. I'm glad that you got to that, Chris. Um, throughout my traditional studies, I've continued to use the outer planets as well as not only the four major asteroids in Chiron, but I have a custom list of about 500 other asteroids that I scan for every client chart I do and pull out the ones that are most significant. So I haven't abandoned the outer planets of the asteroids as I've been developing the Hellenistic traditional astrology, but I'm treating them in different ways and using the Hellenistic to establish the basic framework of the chart and to use the um, classical visible planets as rulers of signs. I still look at where Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto are at in the chart, their aspects, their house position, their transits, but I don't use them as the rulers of the topics of the houses of um, Aquarius and Pisces and Scorpio. And then I layer in the asteroids, and while they have affinities with certain signs, I certainly do not use them as rulers of those signs. Okay. Now, and that, when that was you have like some what? That was one of the questions. So yeah. you, you no longer use the tr the modern rulership scheme. You use the traditional rulers of the signs of the zodiac, and you also don't assign rulership of the asteroids to certain signs. That right. was one it, question. Right. In the book, I said that asteroids have associations with certain signs. Ceres certainly with the fertile earth of Taurus and with like the death rebirth mysteries with Scorpio. And with the goddess who carries the sheath of wheat with Virgo. And so while there's overlays there, that doesn't mean that she rules those signs. And this goes back to the assignment of rulerships not being based on affinities, but geometry. But let's not do that conversation at this sure. moment. Yeah. Um, then how do you place them in the chart so as not to get overwhelmed? And Ceres, Pallas, Juno, and Vesta, I treat the same as all of the other planets with the same orbs that I use for other planets. Which is like um, ten, up to 10 degrees or something? It could be up to 10 degrees. And the more Hellenistic I go, if they're simply in the same sign and they're co-present, they have 
irrelevance to the topics of that house. Okay. If I'm looking at them in terms of aspect, I sort of go back and forth. And the places that I see as most significant are the seven power points in the chart. And those are in a conjunction with the sun, the moon, the ruler of the ascendant, and with the four angles, the ascendant, descendant, midheaven, and IC. And if there's a major asteroid at those points, it's really important. And if there's a minor asteroid at those points within a one to two and certainly not more than three degree orb, then I'll look at it and make note of it. Okay. But that I'm not using five and 10 degree orbs for the minor asteroids. And um, after the conjunctions to the these planets, I might look for oppositions if it seems to be relevant. Um, squares, to a lesser extent, squares only if they seem to fall into a, a major aspect pattern that's connected with other planets. Um, I'm certainly not looking at quincunxes, which I don't use anyway, that have seven or eight degree orbs between some planet and an asteroid. It's like that doesn't fall anywhere within the range of signification. So I've greatly like narrowed the orb and the places of signification as a way of creating a filtering mechanism for working with the minor asteroids. Okay. And you seem to be prioritizing like hard hard aspects, like especially the conjunction and the opposition, yeah. and then lower the squares with important planets, and then right. even lower still if you even consider it like a trine or a sextile to a luminary or senate ruler. Right. Or are you even doing that? Yeah. yeah. Um, not much the sextile. And that turned out, you know, when Kepler was doing his thing on aspects in the end, trying to determine which aspects were most important, that was pretty much the um, ordering that he came to as, as well. Okay. The conjunctions and opposition seem to be the most prominent followed by some of the other aspects. Yeah, I think there was another comment in there, but I lost it. Sure, that's fine. Yeah. Um, one of the other things, I know you've done a talk for a while, which I really loved when you were trying to synthesize, and you did eventually. So you have Astro Goddesses, which you wrote in 1986, but then later in 2008, you published Astrology and the Authentic Self. And this is a great synthesis of modern and traditional astrology and kind of outlines you do have a, a chapter where you bring the asteroids into a traditional context and you do give, like, you outline your hierarchy of. Like high priority asteroid placements versus moderate versus low. So, people interested in that should really check out that book for the synthesis, would you say? Yes. Or, I mean, yeah, certainly that's a way of integrating all of that material. And then, oh, you said the thing about the asteroids and the diamonds. Right. Right. And I remember at that very, um, beginning of my exposure to Hellenistic astrology and um, Project Hindsight, sort of poo-pooing the asteroids, of course, and then going back to Schmidt with his asteroids and showing how the asteroid Plato was really important in this chart. And the second famous philosoph favorite philosopher was also keyly placed in the chart. Um, and he challenged me. He said, oh, well, if you could find a place for the asteroids in the ancient cosmology, 
I might think more about considering them. So that led to the um, piece of work on seeing the asteroids as daimons. And in the ancient philosophical view of the world, the daimons were semi-divine spirits that were tiny and invisible. And there were thousands of them everywhere in the universe. And they were the attendants of the planets um, in the Corpus Hermeticum who went about taking care of the details of the planetary decrees. And so then I posed this notion that the asteroids, of which there are thousands and were invisible and were tiny in the sky and gave the details um, associated with planets, could be correlated to the ancient view of the diamonds. And that way found a place for them in both um, Hellenistic astrology and ancient cosmology. As these intermediate uh, deities or intermediate right. spirits between right. the larger celestial world realm and the realm of like individual human beings, exactly. Okay, um, and the title of that talk because that's on your website. I think it's asteroids, diamonds, and fate. fate. Right? Yes. Okay. And there's a lot of examples of how the asteroid diamonds play out in specific charts. Okay. You know, um, I've, I've worked with them. Um, the chart of Jackie Kennedy a lot. And in her chart, um, she has the moon in uh, Aries, and Valens calls the moon the significator, one of the significators of legal marriage. And opposite the moon, within a degree of the asteroids John and Aristotle, the name of her first and second husband. Then with her midheaven, was the conjunction of the asteroid um, Maori and Temple and the third great love of her life to whom she was not married was Maurice Templeman. And then with those were the asteroids Odysseus and Penelope. And I said, well, what does that have to do with this whole complex? And it turned out the island of Scorpios that she lived on with her marriage to Aristotle Onassis when she sat on her deck and looked across the sea, there was the island of Ithaca that she could see, which is where the mythology of Penelope and Odysseus came from. So even there, we have the confluence of the mythic and personal within the chart of an archetypal person. And we see the details of not only where you're going to end up, but who specifically you're going to end up being with. And there are many fascinating stories. Now, probably all kinds of people will run out and look up on astro.com the names of their significant others and mm -hmm. see where they are in their chart. And that will be for many of you a big aha moment. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what you would recommend is look up personal names, um, sometimes places or yeah. locations. Um, I know in terms of other minor asteroids, you said you had a short list of those that you'll look up in each chart that are mainly mythological ones, or what's Mostly your source? mythological, and some are common names, and some are common places, hmm. and some are concepts, um, lust and fate and temperance and beer and. Oh yeah, you all, have a funny anecdote about the asteroid beer. That you sometimes tell. I don't know if you want to go into it, but otherwise people might be do you, wondering. Do you why. remember it? Do you remember it? It's like, um, 
Um, it was just that you, what it was like a um, there there was a story once where I don't know if they were mocking or questioning the question of asteroids, yeah. but you had a client maybe once who. Um, for some reason, you like threw the asteroid beer in their chart, and it was like really prominent, like exactly yeah. conjunct their sun or ascendant. Yeah, conjunct then... their moon in the sixth house. Okay, and she was an alcoholic, and it was a family problem. Okay, yeah. So it's just like sometimes even random, weirdly right, or named that asteroids. asteroid Bacchus, who's the god of wine, and um. I did a reading for someone at Norwalk years ago, and there it was conjunct this person's son. And I said, like, do you have any connection, like, with wine? I just threw that out. And it turned out that he had a family uh, vineyard and was a producer of high-quality wine in um, California. Okay. So, wow. Yeah, so I, you, I can just go on endlessly with those examples, but they are there. And as I said, the use of the minor asteroids brings me to the edge of what is reasonable in astrology and sort of pushes me off the edge. Um, and that's like one of the great mysteries that the asteroids hold for the contemplation of the cosmos. Sure. And it seems like even though you have sorting mechanisms for trying to figure out which ones are going to be more important or less important, and you focused especially on like conjunctions with the luminaries exactly. or exactly. with the ruler of the ascendant or the four the degrees of the four angles, it seems like to a certain extent there's still this wild card element of there's so many that you're not going to be able to use or incorporate all of them. Right. But there might be some other element about how they come up or some mysterious element in which they may be operating in a person's life in ways that that you never know or never see, even if they they are in some ways. Yeah. Okay. Um, great. I'm trying to think if there's any other major questions or things we meant to touch on before we wrap up here, just in terms of this. I know a lot of people ask about Lilith, and while you touched upon it in Astrid Goddesses, that's something you dealt with in more depth in a later book, right? Right. Mysteries of the Dark Moon. I did the mythic, psychological um, portrayal of Lilith and finding our way through the dark has the workbook, astrological workbook. And there are three bodies named Lilith. One is the asteroid. One is this thing called the black moon. That's the empty focal point in the moon's orbit around the earth. And then there's this hypothetical second satellite of the earth um, that's also named Lilith. So there can be a lot of confusion over which one to use. I think all three of them irrelevant, even though the third one is totally hypothetical. And I haven't really worked with that very much at all in many, many years. But solar fire has the black moon as a default. So many people have used that. And um, mythologically, she was um, a handmaiden of Inanna that then got cast out of Inanna's garden and then became incorporated into um, uh, Babylonian mythology is a screeching she-demon of the night that the Hebrews um, brought back into the Garden of Eden as the snake that tempted Eve. And they uh, demonize as a principle of feminine sexual um, allure and being ostracized and exiled and cast out. She's one of the um, most... Uh, toxically repressed of all of the feminine archetypes. And there's a lot of very 
deep and heavy and painful material that can surface up when she's involved in um, significant placements in the chart. You don't do you have a preference between like the asteroid versus the dark moon? Mold? No, I think that they're they're both archetypes and they both um, work. And if you want to split hairs, you can do that, but I think they they both give forth meaning. Okay. And in a positive interpretation, especially the black moon is connected with the Indian goddess Kali. Um, and it's the ability to, like with her curved knife, um, cut through illusion and see and speak the truth of things as they are. And oftentimes people don't really like other people who point out the elephant in the middle of the room and expose that which everyone else wants to keep suppressed. Mm. And okay. so that that's part of the um, courage um, involved in the expression of that archetype. Okay, brilliant. All right. Um, well, we're at 90 minutes, so I know you have to go. Yeah. Um, there's a bunch of other asteroids and other things I'm sure that you use in incorporating mythology and in terms of your shortlist, but you've done dozens of talks on this and you've shared. I'm just looking through your um, website and it seems like you have over a dozen different talks and workshops that are available for sale if people want to, to learn more about this. Um, great, yes. Okay, it's cool. an incredibly rich area um, for research, and I encourage everyone out there. The field is so wide open, and there's so much to be done and can be done that I definitely, if you want to connect, and not only certainly with the feminine, but with um, an expanded view of the archetypal mythic dimensions of the cosmos, the asteroids are a beautiful field to cultivate. Very fertile. Brilliant. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your contributions to that over the course of the past few decades. And um, yeah, thanks for joining me today to do this talk and and share this. I've been wanting to capture some of this piece of history for a while, and I'm glad we got a chance to do it today. Yeah, it's always a pleasure connecting with you, Chris, and with all of your listeners. And thank you for this hour. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so uh, people can find out more information at your website, which is demetragorge.com. Um, like we said, you've got that. Asteroid Goddesses 2020 webinar coming up through Astrology University on June 20th of 2020. Um, and if people sign up for your newsletter on your website, they can get notified about registration. Um, you also mentioned the Asteroid Goddesses personal report, which is just $25 on your website. Um, of course, your book, Asteroid Goddesses 1986, is it in its like third edition? Like the current edition was revised at some point. Right, where the, the ephemerides were updated. So that they're current for this time now. Okay, got and that's it. That's published by Ibis Press. Okay, so search for the Ibis Press version for the latest right, version. Amazon. If you just yeah, you could go to Amazon. Yeah, look for the most recent edition. Okay, and then finally, you'll be giving talks on this at the Northwest Astrology Conference in Seattle this year in May, the ESAR Conference in Denver in September, and at the Faculty of Astrological Studies Summer School, which is in when Oxford is that? in August. In August. As, okay. As well as South Florida Astrological Association next Saturday. Brilliant. All right. Awesome. Well, um, thank you again for joining me today. And um, thanks everybody for listening. And uh, I guess that's it for this episode.
Thanks to the patrons who supported the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through a page on Patreon.com, including patrons Christine Stone, Nate Craddock, and Marin Altman. Also thanks to the AstroGold Astrology app, available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs at honeycomb.co, and also the International Society for Astrological Research, which is hosting a conference in Denver, Colorado, September 10th through the 14th, 2020. More information about that at esar2020.org, and the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening in Seattle, Washington, May 21st through the 25th, 2020. More information about that at norwac.net. To sign up to become a patron and get early access to new episodes and other bonus content, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast.